following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed, distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. If you've been paying attention to headlines in recent years, perhaps you've seen that uh, in America, at least, and, and in the modern West more generally, there's something that's now categorized as a public health crisis that ha- hasn't always been categorized as such, and that is loneliness. Of course, this, when we see these headlines, this raises our eyebrows. I mean, we're not used to hearing the U.S. Surgeon General of all people say, as he repeatedly has, that the most prevalent health issue now facing our country is not cancer or heart disease or obesity or even smoking. It's isolation. But I confess that, that all those headlines, all that data, felt somewhat abstract to me until two weeks ago. Until two weeks ago when I came across two particular data points. The first one was encouraging. The first one is that Richmond is now the the fastest growing area in the state, more than even Northern Virginia. Praise the Lord. People are, are coming in increasing numbers to where we are. But the second data point was sobering. Chamber of Commerce just conducted a study in which they analyzed Census Bureau data to determine what are America's loneliest cities based on the number of one-person households. So this has nothing to do with singleness. This, This has to do with people who don't even have one roommate. Richmond, in all the country, came in fourth. And for women, we're number one the loneliest city in America. 28% of Richmond women live completely alone. That's the highest percentage in the nation. What this means, of course, is that the Lord has placed our young church in this place at this time to be part of the solution, just a small part of the solution by modeling gospel community, which begins and consists of gospel friendships. In the Bible, 
though it's an ancient book, I don't know what your opinion of the Bible is, but we can at least agree this is an ancient book. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to understand. It can be intimidating in parts, but the Bible is immensely relevant to the loneliness ec- epidemic. It's, it's relevant in the resources it contains for us as a church and for our growing but lonely city. Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Paul is in prison, or at least under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting his fate under Caesar, and he's writing to a church way off in northern Greece that he helped start 10 years earlier. And here in chapter 2, he's holding up examples of a life poured out. Examples of a life poured out for the good of others. First and foremost, in verses 1 to 11, we saw the ultimate example of the poured out life, Jesus Christ. And then in verses 17 and 18, if you remember, Paul said that he himself is being poured out like a drink offering on behalf of the Philippians. But you can almost imagine, can't you, someone in that congregation thinking to themselves, all right, I, I, I get that Jesus lived that kind of life or that Paul lived that kind of life, but come on, I, I'm just an ordinary believer. I'm not the son of God. I'm not an apostle. And so now Paul, at the end of chapter two, turns to say, essentially, I'm not done. I, I've got two more examples, two ordinary men who embody the very kind of poured out life to which I'm calling you. Here's what I think is the main idea of these verses at the end of Philippians chapter 2, the main idea of the passage, and therefore the main idea of this message. Don't underestimate the power of gospel friends and the joy of a poured out life in service to the king. Don't underestimate the power of gospel friends and the joy of a poured out life in service to the king. Well, think about this main idea through the lens of these two particular examples. First, the guy I'm sending you. And second, the guy you sent me. How are those for sermon points? Number one, the guy I'm sending you, verses 19 to 24. And second, the guy you sent me. It's verses 25 to 30. The guy I'm sending you, the guy you sent me. First, the guy I'm sending you, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. This whole passage, as as you'll see, as you'll hear, is, is like a window into Paul's heart. Notice how he talks about his plans here. He situates them under the sovereign leading and lordship of Christ. Notice at the beginning of verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. He doesn't presume on God's will. He knows God reserves the right to alter his plans. In fact, it was a divine redirection that led Paul to Philippi in the first place. 
You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. He and his team didn't want to go to Macedonia where Philippi was located. They wanted to go to Central Asia, modern day Turkey, but the Holy Spirit shut the door. And so they had to reroute and they had to go to Macedonia instead. And as a result, the Philippian church was born. So Paul knows how to hold his calendar with loose hands. One of the reasons Timothy here is is being dispatched to, to Philippi is, according to verse 19, so that Paul himself will have the opportunity to hear a report that will hearten and cheer him. See it there? I'm sending Timothy to you so that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. Now, this was not an age of instant communication. The, the trip from Rome to Philippi was over 800 miles. It would have taken at least three months. And so what Paul is basically saying is, hey, I'm willing to wait at least half a year for, for Timothy to go and return to, to lose his companionship, to lose his help, to give that up. I'm willing to do it if only you would be helped. If only I would be in a position as a result of losing Timothy to hear an encouraging report. Notice that logic in verse 19. It's simple but profound. The only way Paul is going to get cheered, the only way he's going to get encouraged is if he hears words about how God is working. Let me just be honest with you about something. Uh, I, I have a dear friend who is an agnostic, and, which means that he's not sure if God exists. Uh, he certainly struggles with a lot of doubts related to Christianity. And he asked me recently if I have any doubts. Now, I'm, I'm a I'm a pastor after all. He was cu just curious to know. And, and I responded, absolutely I do. And I ticked off a few to him. One of the doubts that I mentioned was the power of preaching the Bible. I can doubt that what I'm doing right now is actually powerful, it's, it, that it's actually accomplishing anything decisive in people's lives. I mean, I believe it theologically. I believe that the preaching the Bible will not return void. That it's the power of God unto salvation. But it, it is a hard thing. It is a hard thing to, to pour my heart and my energy week in and week out into preparing a sermon and then preaching it and then wondering if it actually accomplished anything. Now, we do have some mechanisms in our church, such as service review, where people can come and give constructive feedback. And, and I would go even beyond that and say that there are some of you in particular that I think excel in the gift of encouragement. But it can still be hard not to wonder, not to have a, just a sneaking suspicion, a sneaking fear at times. Is all this labor, all this effort accomplishing much? <laughs> I mean, you preach your heart out week in and week out to people who show up the next Sunday looking pretty much the same. And don't be offended because guess what? I show up every Sunday pretty much feeling like the same guy who got up here the week before. I mean, is the, is the word of God really transforming any of us? 
Is it really making a decisive difference in our daily lives? I mean, I was challenged recently when when another friend of mine, a, a Christian friend, said, hey, we often ask the question, how did the gospel transform you? Past tense, like when you became a Christian, but how is the gospel transforming you right now? What in your life would be different today? Not just I'm a Christian and I otherwise wouldn't be, but what about how you think, how you behave, how you live is different today because the gospel is having its way in your heart? Satan can discourage me by, by, by making me just fear that, that maybe I am just standing up here and unleashing words that at best stir people in the moment, but don't really change people in the days to come. Paul didn't just want to hear the Philippians are doing fine. He wanted a, a, a report so that he could be cheered. And, and pastors, I, I am speaking on behalf of all pastors here, which is dangerous to do, but I think in this regard, I can. Pastors don't just want to hear good sermon. They want to hear a concrete way it actually helped. Now, I realize, I, I hope I'm self-aware enough to realize this sounds like a very self-interested application, but it's really not. Because I, I'm, I'm just being honest with you all about a struggle that I have, a, a doubt that can slither in and get a foothold in my heart. But in, honest, in all honesty, the principle here that I'm talking about is so much bigger than just the Sunday morning sermon, and it's so much bigger than just me. I mean, imagine if we refused, as a church, refused to settle for being a church that was only good at voicing feedback on preaching. Imagine if we were a church that resolved to voice feedback, to be quick to voice feedback to anyone who is caught doing something good. I mean, just imagine the effect if throughout the week, dozens of us, scores of us were hearing specific ways that we have been used by God for the spiritual blessing of others. Just imagine the the kind of cascading, cumulative effect of such a culture of encouragement, reverberating encouragement throughout the life of the church. Talk about an antidote, okay? Talk about a counteroffensive against the kind of grumbling and complaining that we were warned against last week. Well, Paul is saying that that the Philippians should feel loved, that he's willing to release to them someone of Timothy's caliber. And he's saying, I'm willing to release him to you because I want to hear a report on how you're doing. I want to hear about the fruit of gospel ministry for the glory of God. Verse 20, here's what he says about Timothy. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Do you hear the echo from earlier in the chapter? Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. 
And then in verses 5 to 11, Paul proceeded to show that the ultimate example to looking to, uh, of looking to others' interests is the one who emptied himself of glory in order to come all the way down, down, down that staircase of humility in order to rescue those who don't deserve it. And again, lest we think, all right, well, well that's the Son of God. I mean, that's one of the most soaring passages in the Bible, Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Paul says, well, I'm not just holding you to an impossible standard. You can live up to the standard of embodying the mindset and the attitude of Christ. You can because here is an ordinary guy who does. And then he trots out Timothy. While everyone else is busy grumbling and looking out for themselves, Paul says, this brother shines like a star in the sky by looking out for others. In his excellent commentary on the book of Philippians, Matthew Harmon writes, quote, being genuinely concerned about others is easy. Being genuinely concerned about others is easy when it causes no personal inconvenience. But the true test is when it means neglecting your own interests for the sake of others. We must not miss the theological connection here. When we show genuine concern for fellow members of the body of Christ, we are in fact seeking the interests of Jesus Christ. Can this be said of you? Does this kind of self-giving spirit hum in your own heart? Or are you just so consumed with your own things, your own schedule, your own stuff, maybe even your own spiritual life, that there's just little room left to care, genuinely care and show concern for the spiritual well-being of others in your church. You realize, don't you, that you're always living in either Philippians 1.21 or 2.21. You are always inhabiting one of those two verses. 121, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 221, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. In which verse does your heart mainly reside? And to answer that question, just ask yourself this, am I gripped, am I animated with concern for the spiritual well-being of others in my church? Well, Paul proceeds, verse 22, you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. Three brief things I, I want you to notice in, in verse 22. First, notice Paul says, you know, you know that Timothy has proved himself. Well, how do they know? They know because they know Timothy. He was with Paul in Philippi a decade earlier when they planted the church. And you, brother or sister, if you serve faithfully among God's people, then over time, you too will 
emerge and be known. Now, that's not a reason to serve, but it is, according to the Bible, a result of service. Speaking of Timothy, I'm reminded of something Paul wrote to him a few years later when Timothy was pastoring uh, First Baptist Ephesus. Paul adds this promise, 1 Timothy 3.13, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith. That may be the kind of verse you just speed past. May that end today. 1 Timothy 3.13 is a golden promise. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith. In other words, if you serve well, you're going to receive two things in increasing measure. The first comes horizontally from the church, and that is respect. And the second descends vertically from God. That's boldness, assurance. And I love this promise because Paul doesn't make it to Josh, Sebastian, and me. He doesn't make it to elders, to the leaders of the church. He says, deacons, you whose work is so hidden, so thankless, let this put wind in your sails. Paul says, people are going to see your life and know your work if you just keep your head down and do it faithfully. And speaking of deacons, I, I see this spirit shining forth from all of our deacon nominees. I've, I've seen it for a year and a half in our brother Garrett and, and in so many of you who have helped to get this church off the ground without fanfare, without the need for recognition or credit or praise, but simply because you've understood that this has been an all-hands-on-deck effort for the glory of the King, and you've been happy to serve him and his people. And as your pastor, I am so grateful for that. Timothy was chosen to make this journey not because of his unique accomplishments or even because of his, his gifting. He was chosen to make this journey to Philippi because of his character. And there is a lesson there for us all. The second thing I want you to see in this verse is Paul's description of Timothy. He calls him his spiritual son. The, the idea is, uh, is apprenticeship. All right, sons would, would shadow their dads in order to learn the craft that brought income to the family. But for Paul, as one commentator observes, quote, the family business is the advancement of the gospel. And Timothy has proven capable of participating in his spiritual father's trade. Timothy uh, Paul wasn't Timothy's literal dad. This is talking about spiritual fatherhood. And that's because, if you know from elsewhere in the New Testament, that's because Timothy's dad wasn't a Christian. We, we know from elsewhere that, that Timothy's mom and grandma were Jewish Christians, but his dad was a pagan worshiping Gentile. And so Paul had, had stepped into that role of spiritually fathering, mentoring the boy. But listen up, kids, okay? Kids, this still applies to you because so many of you do have literal mothers and fathers who know and love the Lord. Having other spiritual influences is important. We, we're all about that. 
But don't take for granted those that the Lord has placed right in front of you in your own home. I mean, ask yourself this question, kids. How am I inviting my parents to help me grow in my faith? You don't have to come up with eight things. Just think of one. What is one practical way that you are or could start this week inviting your parents to help you grow in your faith? Ask yourself, am I taking any initiative to ask them spiritual questions or do I just sort of float through life expecting any serious conversation about faith to have to be prompted by them? Oh, kids, you're you're already curious about a lot of things. I don't have to make you curious. You're curious about movies and music and books and trips and fashion and friends. Oh, be curious about the things of God. Ask your parents spiritual questions. Serve alongside them. Use these years. Don't waste your childhood. Don't waste your adolescence. Use these years to position yourself for long-term success, to set yourself up, to, to put yourself in a place where you will be able to have a lifetime of serving for the Lord. And if the parents you're, you're living with aren't Christians or maybe Maybe only one of them is a Christian. Maybe your dad, for example, isn't walking with the Lord. We want you to know that this church is filled with brothers and sisters who would love to play the role of spiritual mother or spiritual father, to step into that gap, just as Paul did with Timothy. Psalm 68, 6 says, it declares, and I love this verse, the Lord sets the lonely in families. The Lord sets the lonely in families. And first and foremost, he does so in the family of God. The last thing I want you to see in verse 22 is how Paul phrases something. Look carefully there. You know that Timothy has proved himself Because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. No, it's not what it says. Paul's focus is not on how Timothy has served him. It's on the fact that Timothy has served with him. In other words, he doesn't play the apostle card and talk about Timothy as as if he's just some kind of errand boy. No, he sees him as a co-laborer in the most important vocation in the world. And you, brothers and sisters, you are not in this church just to serve us as elders. You're in this church to serve with us in the work of the gospel. And this also means that discipleship, there's a word that Christians love to use. Well, it's often misunderstood. Discipleship is a two-way street. You don't have to always know if you're the Paul or the Timothy in a relationship in order for it to work. Sometimes that may be the case, but don't put so much weight on whether you're the Paul or the Timothy, the Timothy, the mentor or the mentee. Just meet up with someone to read the Bible. Seek to encourage them spiritually. And don't worry so much about who holds the mantle of mentor. Well, despite Timothy's irreplaceable value as a son and a partner. And, and you, you can't miss that he's irreplaceable. I mean, 
His departure will affect Paul. This will increase Paul's load. It will make Paul's life more difficult. But Paul is so kingdom-minded that he's willing to release Timothy. Verse 23, I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. That is is with my, my legal trial. Verse 24, and I am confident in the Lord. There it is again. His confidence is in the Lord that I myself will come soon. So, so Paul is, he expects to be acquitted, but he, he knows that that has not necessarily been promised to him. And you know what's interesting? As confident as he was that he would make it back to Philippi, it never happened. Even for the apostle, it was another shut door in his face. This is yet another reminder that we can't presume on God's plans. The Bible is so clear about this. Proverbs 16, 9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Planning is good. You you ought to plan, but you ought to do so understanding that God reserves the right to change things on your future calendar. So Paul's exhibit A, his exhibit A of a poured out life is Timothy, the guy I'm sending you. Point two, the guy you sent me. Here's exhibit B, verse 25. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. The book of Philippians is the only place in the New Testament where this fellow shows up. It's, it's a different guy than Epaphras. This is only Philippians. Uh, we're going to see him again in chapter 4 when Paul says, chapter 4, verse 18, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. The reason Epaphroditus only shows up in this particular letter is because he was a member of this particular church. The Philippians had sent him to minister to Paul financially and otherwise, and Paul had benefited deeply. I mean, just look at the way he describes this man. It's like he's flipping through a thesaurus, just piling up titles. Five things he calls Epaphroditus in verse 25 alone. The first three concern Epaphroditus' relationship to Paul, brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, The last two concern Epaphroditus' relationship to the Philippians, uh, messenger, caretaker. We don't know how this guy started following Jesus, but he's almost certainly the first convert in his family. Why do I say that? Why why do I strongly believe that Epaphroditus is a first-generation Christian? Well, because his parents named him after Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and sexual pleasure which means they probably worshiped her. But the gospel had at some point interrupted Epaphroditus in his paganism. It had invaded him and changed his life. And it had changed the life of another guy, Paul, 
so that it could bring, and this is what only the gospel can do, it can bring people like this together, an ex-Pharisee, not just embracing a Gentile with a pagan name, but esteeming him as a ministry equal. Verse 26, for he, Epaphroditus, longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So somewhere along that 800-mile journey from Rome, uh, from I'm sorry, from Philippi to Rome, or after he'd arrived in Rome, Epaphroditus had contracted an illness that had almost killed him. The Philippians had gotten word of this, and they were understandably racked with anxiety about their beloved friend. But notice why Paul thinks it necessary to send him back. I had never noticed this until this past week. Notice why Paul thinks it necessary, that's the language of verse 25, to send him back. Well, because verse 26, Epaphroditus is distressed because he knows the Philippians are worried. In other words, Paul's not just sending Epaphroditus back because the Philippians are distressed. He's sending back this guy who almost died because he is distressed. Do do you see what's going on? Epaphroditus is the one who almost died, and yet he's thinking about others. He's more distressed by how his illness is affecting them than by how it's affecting him. It's like a man coming out of cardiac arrest and open-heart surgery who almost lost his life, and he immediately grows deeply upset because he sees how anxious his family is. Verse 29, so then, Welcome, Epaphroditus, in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. Why? Verse 30, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Epaphroditus is worthy of honor because he almost died in the line of duty while getting this gift of, of money and other resources to Paul. And he didn't just bring money from the church in Philippi. He brought the gift of embodied presence. That's what Paul means by the help you could not give me. That, I, I think that's a great translation. Some of your Bibles may say something like, uh, it may speak of a kind of lack. Well, that's not referring to any kind of moral lack in the Philippians. It's referring to a physical lack, <laughs> That's what they were unable to give Paul. It's not that the Philippians had sinned. It's that they were, by definition, in not being with him, unable to present the gift in person, to give him the the, the gift of embodied presence, which is precisely what Epaphroditus had done for them on their behalf. And men like this, Paul says, are worth honoring. They're worth honoring. But not because their work is is newsworthy. I mean, if Paul had not been impressed with Epaphroditus, we would have never heard of him. This guy doesn't have a lot of exploits to his name that would have gotten him into the book of Acts or something. No, 
Paul says men like him are worth honoring even if what they do doesn't make the headlines. What they do might even seem trivial to some, but it's not trivial, Paul is saying, in the eyes of God or in my eyes. For Paul to send Timothy and Epaphroditus, and again, I said this earlier, but we we, we have to try to put ourselves in his situation and, and realize this. For Paul to send both Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippians would have been a massive personal loss for him but he's willing to do it. He is willing to release them if only it will lead to the strengthening and the flourishing of the Philippian church. Oh, we can't miss this. Sometimes the poured out life is demonstrated by the choice to send our best. Just imagine what this mindset could mean for us in the years to come at RCBC as we look to the future? I mean, what if we understood the call of evangelism and missions and church planning as bigger than just our own prospering at RCBC? I mean, our sending church, Third Avenue in Louisville, had this vision, and here we are. What if we too were willing to sacrifice to help other countries I'm sorry, other churches in other countries and in other cities in our own by sending some of our best. And you got to understand this. These aren't necessarily people that came into our church telling us in their membership interview that they were here for a limited period of time until we sent them out. No, sending our best means sending people that we've spent years pouring into and preparing for increased responsibilities only for them to go and discharge them elsewhere, only for them to go and be a blessing to another church. Oh, as we look forward to maturing as a congregation and one day having a permanent meeting place, let's ask the Lord to make River City Baptist Church a buzzing hub of gospel activity and a launching pad, not a museum, not a laboratory, a launching pad for gospel workers from the heart of Virginia to the very ends of the earth. Well, in conclusion, if if Richmond is indeed one of the loneliest cities in America, then what an opportunity we have to show a more excellent way, to embody a kind of family life in which we value others above ourselves. I mean, so often I think when we think about the measure of godliness, a life of godliness, we, we use metrics of quiet times, sponsored children, mission trips, things that are good in and of themselves. But we should be challenged by the logic that underpins this passage in Philippians. Because what captivated Paul, what moved him to honor these two particular men, the metric that had Paul's attention was that they were so deeply invested in God's people. These were true gospel friends. These were true gospel friends. And and being a friend, being such a friend isn't complicated. You know what what it takes to be a gospel friend? It just takes entering a interaction, entering a situation, entering a relationship with the mindset of, hey, I'm gonna make what's important to you important to me and what's important to God important to us. 
That's gospel friendship. Making what's important to you important to me and what's important to God important to us. But it takes work, especially as an adult, to build these kinds of spiritually intentional friendships. I'm not assuming that all of you went to college or that all of you had an easy time relationally in college, but if you've lived as an adult post-college, you have come to see that building and maintaining friendships is not what it once was. If friendships in college were, were in a compressed time frame and space and were marked by intensity, friendships now are marked by duration. If friendships in college were more like a microwave, friendships as an adult are more like a crock pot. And it, it's hard. We are in a loneliness epidemic as the experts are telling us with data. But I'm convinced that all of the patience, all of the forbearance, all of the the long-suffering, the forgiveness, the work that it takes to build and maintain such friendships is worth it because friendship is one of the sweetest foretastes of the age to come that we get to experience in this life. And of course, we are only able to enjoy the gift of gospel friendship because someone else has already befriended us. We can love others because God has first loved us. But there's there's bad news before that can become good news, and the bad news is that none of us are automatically born a friend of God. In fact, we're born his enemies. We're we're natural-born enemies. But he came close in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. God came close to us. Our sin had separated us from God. I mean, you realize basically sin is just the reality that God has given us life and has given us breath, and we have thanked him by living for ourselves. But he has come to pursue us, to befriend us, even though we deserve to be eternally estranged from him. He lived the perfect life, the poured out life in our place. He died on the cross in our place for our sin. He rose again, triumphant on the third day, all so that you can accept the friendship that he's holding out in his hands. The gospel is that God became a friend of sinners so that sinners might become friends of God. Turn from your sin. If you have not done so, oh, we're so happy you're here. Turn from your sin today. Put your trust in Jesus and you will be welcomed. You'll be forgiven and you'll be welcomed into the greatest friendship in the world, the one for which you were made. Listen, if you feel isolated, come to Jesus. If you feel lonely, come to Jesus. If you feel weak, come to Jesus. If you feel discouraged, come to Jesus. If you feel guilty, come to Jesus. If you feel squeaky clean and like you don't need a Savior, come to Jesus. He is your, true, your heart's truest desire, the only friend who will never let you down. Why would you not come to him today in faith? I guarantee you this, if you could just see his heart for you, you would. If you could just get a glimpse of his heart for you, you would be drawn like a magnet into his arms. Richmond may be lonely, but what a friend we have to offer. 
What a friend we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for sending your only begotten Son to live the poured out life and through the power of the Holy Spirit residing within us to empower us to live poured out lives for the good of others and for the glory of your name. Help us to receive your offer of friendship and then in turn to go be gospel friends to others laying down our preferences, laying down our convenience, laying down our rights so that others may flourish in the Lord. And we pray that our little church here at RCBC in the months and the years to come would be a, a, a buzzing hub of gospel activity as we are able to launch people like arrows to the ends of the earth for your glory. And it's in your beautiful name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.